Let's look here in the book of Daniel. Let's have a word of prayer. We're going to, we'll be in Daniel chapter 2 this morning. We'll have a word of prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us this morning. Thank you, God, for your mercy. And, uh, Lord, we do thank you for an opportunity to gather together at your house, Lord. And we pray, God, that you'd meet with us, Lord, and pray that you'd guide us this morning. Lord, some uh, pretty intense things, Lord, to look at this morning in the Sunday school hour. God, I pray you'd guide me, Lord, and help me. And, uh, Lord, pray that you'd help me to be clear, help these to understand clearly. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I tried to set up a chart this morning, and uh, one of the grommets came loose out of it, so we're not going to be able to use that this morning. So you'll have to use your imagination and try to, as we go through the passage this morning, try and use your imagination a little bit. Some of this will be review for some of you, and then for some of you it might be new. Uh, but what we've been going over for the last couple of Sundays is the difference between the Jew and the church. And what I've tried to do is give you a, a pretty solid foundation on distinguishing between both of those things. And I cannot express to you enough how important it is for you to be able to distinguish between the Jew and the church. The only other thing in the scripture, and I say the only other thing, that's probably very much of a overstatement or an understatement, whichever way you look at it. The, the other thing that is just as important that you're able to, stink, to distinguish between is the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And we've been over that here in, in the church, but we'll, we'll hit that, Lord willing, sometime again in the not too near, uh, in the not too far future, I should say. But it's very important that you're able to distinguish between Israel and the church. And so having, having done that, having gone over that for the last couple of Sundays, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to move on to something a little bit different and perhaps seems a little bit unrelated at first, but it's going to be very beneficial for you to understand as you study the Scriptures. And you do understand that we are supposed to study the Scriptures. Uh, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of the truth. If you're going to work for the Lord, and that, that's the point of study. The point of study is not just so that you can fill up your brain with a bunch of facts and a bunch of information and then go flaunt that to somebody else. The, the reason for studying is so that when you open your mouth to be a witness to someone else or to try and guide someone else in the Scripture, you're able to guide them correctly. Uh, otherwise, the Bible says, shall the blind lead the blind? And if that takes place, then the Lord said both are going to fall into the ditch. And so you don't, you don't want to fall into no ditch. And so uh, here we are in the book of Daniel. That's where we've looked at this morning. We're in Daniel chapter 2. And uh, I, I'll say, just as a matter of introduction, Daniel's a pretty intimidating book. Uh, there's some guys that open the Bible and they act like everything's easy to be understood. And I couldn't disagree more. There are some things in the Scripture that are very difficult to be understood. I believe that there are some things that are still sealed that are not able to be understood and they're not going to be able to be understood until the time of the tribulation. Those are things that are not written to you and I. But nonetheless, some of those things are able to be understood, and we want to understand everything that the Lord will help us to understand. So uh, it's an understood fact that the book of Daniel is at least in part a book of prophecy. And so when you begin to deal with matters of prophecy, there are some things that are kind of, oh, boy, this is kind of 
hard to understand. And, and like I said, that there's a reason for that. And so my goal this morning or next Sunday or the Sunday after that, however long it takes us to get through these things that we're going to look at in the book of Daniel is not to teach you the whole book of Daniel. But what I do want to look at are two things that are found in the book of Daniel that I believe will be a, a the, they're going to be uh, something that you're going to need and they will help you understand the view that God has regarding the Jew and the Gentile over the large portion of time. And it's, I, I don't want to say over all time because it doesn't deal with that, but there are things found here in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 9. Now, if you want to just briefly look over at Daniel chapter 9, I'm not going to read out of Daniel chapter 9, but if you want to turn over there and look at Daniel chapter 9 and let your eyes glance through, Lord willing, we're going to get to this next week, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. We'll deal with that. But when you're looking at Daniel chapter 9 and then Daniel chapter 2, there are two things found in these two chapters that are going to help you understand prophecy more than anything else in the Scripture. Uh, these are the two keys that unlock, uh, I would say, the, the book of Revelation. They unlock many of your minor prophets. They unlock large portions of your major prophets. And as a result, they unlock some aspects of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, particularly Matthew, but also Mark, Luke, and John. And so these are two things that are very important for you to understand. So in Daniel chapter 2, I'm just going to give you a brief summary right quick. Daniel chapter 2, what you're dealing with is a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. That's not hard to understand. And it's, a, it's a vision that Nebuchadnezzar had in a dream. And you know the story. We're not going to read the whole chapter, Daniel chapter 2, but you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. He had this vision. And when he wakes up, he does like a lot of us do. He says, I don't remember what I dreamed. Uh, scientists say that you dream every night. Every time you go to sleep, you, you dream. But many of us wake up and we say, I don't remember what I dreamed. I, I, don't even, I, I don't dream. Well, they say that you dream. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he wakes up from this dream and he says, I had a dream, but I don't remember what it was. Maybe that was what Martin Luther King should have done. That would have kept him probably from getting shot. But anyways, uh, <laughs> I sidetracked myself. I won't be able to think clear for the rest of the service. But anyways, uh, so he, he says, I, I don't remember what it was. And so he brings in all these guys and he says, I, I want you. He said, I had this dream. He brings all, all of his wise men and magicians and he says, I had this dream. And he said, I want you to tell me what it means. And they say, okay, we'll tell you what it means. Tell us the dream. And he said, well, that's the catch. He said, not only do you have to tell me what it means, he said, you have to tell me what the dream is. And he said, if you can't do that, I know you're a bunch of phonies. <laughs> False religion is a really interesting thing. How it is that you can know that somebody's a fake and a phony, you know, you get involved with a false religion and you know that the preachers and the priests are fakes and phonies and still turn around and go back to it, which is what Nebuchadnezzar did later. That blows my mind. You know they're lying. But anyways, uh, so that's what he does. Daniel chapter 2, they say, well, there's nobody alive that can tell you the dream and then also give you the interpretation of it. He said, well, we'll just kill all of you then. And Daniel goes in and he says, give me some time. And he said, he said I'm going to pray. And he said, I'm going to fast and beseech the face of my God. And my God's able to tell me what you dreamed and then give me the interpretation. 
And God did exactly what Daniel asked the Lord to do and what he said that he could do for Nebuchadnezzar. And so he gives him this dream. So that's, that's Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel has a dream. And God is, he, I say has a dream, he has a vision. And there's some things that are explained to him. And so you've got two different things. One is given to Nebuchadnezzar. God gives understanding to Daniel. Daniel tells him the dream and then explains the interpretation. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is the one that receives it directly. Now, here's the difference between the two. Daniel chapter 2 is something that relates to the Gentiles, which would make sense. God gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 9 is something that relates to the Jew. Makes sense. God gave it to Daniel. So there are two distinguishing marks. Now here's the catch. I mean, I'm stepping back and giving you a broad view of these two things because as you get in and focus in on the details, you kind of sit there and your brain kind of gets uh, twisted and you think, well, man, this is really confusing. It's not supremely confusing. There are just a lot of details that have to be kept in order. Uh, you have Daniel chapter 2, a vision that's given regarding the Gentile nations. Daniel chapter 9, a vision that is regarding the children of Israel. It's given regarding Daniel's people. Those two things, those two visions that are given are both timelines. They're matters of time. But those things overlap in some ways. They I don't want to say that they're connected, but I don't know how else to say it. They, they intertwine. They fit together. And so they're not the same, but they are related. And you'll see that, Lord willing, I believe, as we get into it next Sunday. So without making things too much more complicated, let me get on with this. Let me say this. The material in Daniel 2 brings the Gentile in focus. The material in Daniel chapter 9 brings the Jew in focus. And so what you're getting in both chapters are timelines, and then the timelines, like I said, they intermingle in some respects. So if you don't understand what's going on, it can be extremely confusing. So here you are, Daniel chapter 2. Let's pick up the reading in verse 24. The Bible says, Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon, he went and said, unto, and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon, and bring me in before the king, and I will show, uh, bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's the king, that's the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave to Daniel. That's a Babylonian name. He said, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen in the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven. Aren't you thankful for that? And he, he can give you answers. He said, There's a God in heaven that revealeth secrets. Uh, you better be careful about telling secrets to people. God will bring those out in the open. But there's a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king what sh maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be 
in the latter days. Now you see that little phrase right there where he says, he's going to make known to him what shall be in the latter days. That's a buzzword. That is a key phrase because when you deal with the matter of the latter days, you are dealing with something in God's mind that relates to the Jew at the end of the tribulation. You say, well, I thought this had the Gentile in focus. I thought you said this had the Gentile in focus. It does. But when you're reading through your Bible, God has to pull, th let me, God pulls things from different places to let you know where you are in time. This is so simple, it's going to sound stupid, but maybe it won't sound stupid. Maybe it won't sound foolish. The Bible doesn't have any pictures. You understand that? Uh, you go to a Christian bookstore and you open up the Bible and they have all those pictures. That wasn't put in there by God. I was dealing with a lady one time right here in this church, uh, not a member, but she was opening up her Bible and trying to prove to me a, a doctrine that she's messed up on. And she said, look right here, look at my footnote. I said, that's not inspired. I said, that was put in there by editors. That was put in there by the people that put your Bible together. And she said, she got real indignant like I, was, I had lost my mind. And I looked at her, I said, you believe that was put in there by God? She said, it's in my Bible. Sorry. You have a Schofield Bible that's got all Schofield's notes? Those notes by Schofield are not inspired. The text is, in, is given by inspiration of God, not Schofield's notes. Schofield's got some great notes. He's got some notes that's sorely wrong, but it just is what it is. So when you're dealing, I said all that to say that there are no pictures in your Bible, so God does not uh, go through your Bible and give you this big timeline of a chart and say, see here, here's the tribulation. See here, here's the millennial reign which on my side, it would be on this side, look from my viewpoint. He said, God doesn't do that stuff. So what the Lord does is he, he speaks. He gives you information by words. And then you, as a student, as a studier, you have to go through and take these things and say, oh, that phrase has been used over here. I know that that relates to this. So when he uses this term and he says the latter days, I'm just telling you up front, we're going to look at some passages. Go ahead and grab Numbers chapter 24, when you see this term, the latter days, you're dealing with something that God is talking about relating to the Jew at the end of the tribulation. Numbers chapter 24, let's take a look at this and let's see if we can get this established in your mind. Numbers 24, if you recall, this is where uh, Balaam goes up to curse the people of Israel, goes up to curse the children of Israel for Balak, who is a king of certain Gentiles. And so he comes up and he goes to curse these people. And as soon as he goes to curse them, he opens his mouth and God puts something else in there, which is a blessing. And Balak's getting frustrated because I've hired you to curse all of these people and you're blessing them. You're messing the whole thing up. And he said, you know, I can only say what God tells me to say those people are blessed. Well, here in Numbers chapter 24, and look in verse, verse 12. That, that, what I just told you, we're going to pick up in verse 12 and kind of overlap. Balaam said unto Balak, Spake I not also to thy messengers which thou sentest unto me, saying, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of the Lord 
to do either good or bad of mine own, of mine own mind, but what the Lord saith, that will I speak. Now watch. And now, behold, I go unto my people. Come therefore, and I will advertise thee what this people, the children of Israel, what this people shall do to thy people, Gentiles, in the latter days. He said, you come with me, and I'm going to tell you what the children of Israel are going to do to these Gentile nations in the latter days. Verse 15, and he took up this parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, he hath said which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance but having his eyes open. I shall see him but not now. I shall behold him but not nigh. There shall come a star, capital S. There shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter, capital S, shall rise out of Israel. Is there any guess in your mind as to who that is? That's Jesus Christ. It's a proper noun, not just, you know, a common noun. That's why they're capitalized. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies. And Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. Balaam, a false prophet, by the way, who God got involved with for the sake of his people. He opens his mouth, God puts words in his mouth and says, uh, he says, in the latter days, in the latter days, there's going to come a star out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel, and he is going to smite these Gentiles. He's going he's to do, do away with them. He's going to clean house. He said that's what he's going to do. Now, let me ask you something. Jesus Christ has already come, didn't he? he born in a manger, all that. Did any of that stuff take place when he came? So it's something that's going to take place in the future, Right? Okay, all right, look in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4. Now, he's talking about Israel, so look in Daniel chapter 4, look in verse 1. Daniel chapter 4, look in verse 1. The Bible says, Now therefore hearken who? O Israel. He's not talking to the church. He's talking to Israel. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. Now come down to verse 30. He said, when thou art in tribulation. Who's he talking to according to Deuteronomy 4 verse 1? He's talking to Israel. He said, when thou art in tribulation, verse 30, and all these things are come upon thee even in the latter days. So, there's a tribulation. When you study the scripture, and we're going to we'll, we'll look at this later on in our studies. But there is a tribulation that belongs to the church, right? You you promised tribulation, but there is a tribulation that belongs specifically to the children of Israel, and that tribulation is placed, according to the verse, even in the latter days. Whenever you see tribulation associated with the church, one of the things that you'll notice is it's never termed in the latter days. 
When you see tribulation associated with Israel, it's pointed right out very bluntly, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30, it's in the latter days. Just, we're not going to deal with that whole lot this morning, but that's an important thing for you to bear in mind. When thou art in tribulation and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou shalt turn to the Lord thy God and shalt be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee. God's not done with Israel. He's not going to forsake them. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which ye swear unto them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before thee, since the day that God created man upon the earth, and ask from the one side of heaven unto the other, whether there hath been any such thing as this great thing is, or hath been heard like it. Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as thou hast heard and lived? And he goes on and he begins to explain. But all I'm trying to get you to see from Numbers 24 and Deuteronomy chapter 4, all I'm trying to get you to see is when you see the word, the latter days, you should automatically associate that with Israel at the end of the tribulation. And so when he says here, going back to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, he says, There's a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. What follows here in Daniel chapter 2 is something that relates to Gentile nations in the latter days. Okay? Now, it's going to be very clear that when you start reading, it's not solely belonging in the latter days. In other words, it's not in the latter days exclusively because he's going to look at Nebuchadnezzar and say, you're part of this image. And it's clear that Nebuchadnezzar is not necessarily in the latter days regarding the children of Israel. That's a time that comes in the future. Look here, he said, thy dream, verse 28, he said, thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind Upon thy bed, what, shall, what should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of, of thy heart. Thou, O king, sawest. Here's the, here's the dream. Here's the vision. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces." Then the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broke into pieces together and became, uh, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. So now here's the interpretation. I know this might be a little bit dry, but we're trying to get the details. We'll go back and explain it here in just a second. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. 
And after thee shall arise a kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, forasmuch as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, and it shall break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of the potter's clay, part of iron, the, king shall be, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, forasmuch as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. All right, let me go back to verse 31. Let's kind of work our way through here. He said, Thou, O king, verse 31 saw us and behold a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee and the form thereof was terrible. Let me state the obvious. The image that Nebuchadnezzar sees is not a real image. It is an image that is a representation of something else. Okay, you understand that? You say, well, why do you point that out? Well, one, the major reason that I point that out is because when you read through your Bible, God intends for you to take things literally unless he tells you otherwise. Uh, the scripture is not an allegory. The scripture is not, they're not, it's not symbolic. When it talks in terms of, uh, of terms that you use today in the English language, God means what he says. Well, you say, well, I don't know what a particular word means. That's what a dictionary is for. Open up a dictionary and learn. The King James Bible is too hard to understand. Why don't you ever say that about Shakespeare? Shakespeare, Shakespeare. Has anybody ever read Shakespeare? I have read portions of Shakespeare. You say, well, why haven't you read all of it? Because it's boring, first of all. And second of all, it's hard to understand. You say that about my King James Bible. Let me throw off on William Shakespeare for just a second. It's not hard. The King James Bible is much easier to understand. And the things that you don't understand, you can pull out a dictionary and easily understand them. One of the things that you do when you approach the Bible is you take everything literally unless God tells you otherwise or unless you just absolutely can't take it literally. And I'll give you a quick illustration of that and then we'll move on. Jesus Christ said, John chapter 10, I am the door. Is Jesus Christ a literal physical door? No. So he's giving you an illustration. He's giving you a type. He's giving you something that says, hey, I am like this. I'm the door. By me, if any man enter in. Well, in the context, he was talking about a sheepfold. If you want in my sheepfold, you have to come by me. That's not hard to understand. So you take things literally. Well, in this passage, you look at this image, and the, the image is a picture. It's a representation of something else. Verses 31 through 35 is the image. Verses 36 through 45, which we didn't read the last three verses of that section of verses, that is the explanation of the image. Now, here's the other thing to take note of. Verses 31 through 33, he said, here's this image, verse 31. It's a great image. Its brightness was excellent, and the form is terrible. It's terrible, as in it strikes terror. That's what the word means. Knowing, therefore, the Bible says in the New Testament, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It's terrible. Well, he says, this image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron and his feet, part of iron and part of clay. 
No one of those things, no one, the, the head doesn't stand by itself. The breast and the arms doesn't stand by itself. The belly and the thighs do not stand by itself. The legs do not stand by itself. If we cut you up in pieces, that's a very morbid thought, but to illustrate the point, if we cut you up in pieces and put your head here and your chest and your arms here and your belly and your thighs here and then your legs and then your feet, you wouldn't be good to anything. It's a whole. You are a whole. Well, the image that you're looking at, and this is very important for you to understand, to get the understanding of Daniel chapter 2, the image that you're looking at is not pieces. It is one image. What you find in the gold is what you're going to find in the brass. What you find in the iron, you're going to find in the gold. You understand what I'm saying? It's one image. It's, it's the things that are in the head, you're going to find incorporated into the feet. We'll try and make that clear when we get to the end of the lesson. So a head doesn't, it, the, the image is one image. It's a whole. Verse 31, it's a great image. It's a bright image. It's terrible. And so the thing that it, to notice, one of the things to notice, another thing to notice about the image is that it, as it goes on, starts out this, uh, verse 32, this image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, and his feet part of iron and clay. Let me ask you something. What's more valuable, silver or gold? Well, what's more valuable, silver or brass? Silver. So as you go on in the image, Nebuchadnezzar is in his dream and he's looking at this, this image and the Bible said, Daniel tells him, he said, man, it's a terrible image. It's fierce. It's fearsome. But as he's looking at it, as Nebuchadnezzar's looking at it, he's saying, man, this is, this is terrible. This is awesome. This is, oh, strikes terror into your heart. But Daniel points out, he said, as the image goes from the top to the bottom, he said it gets worse. It decreases in value as it goes. It doesn't get better. All right, so... You've got gold, silver, brass, iron, and iron and clay mixed. And then in verse 34 and 35, in this image, there's a stone cut without hands. Now that term, without hands, boy, time sure flies. That term, cut without hands, the term without hands, that is something that signifies the fact that it's something that's done without human instrumentation. The Bible talks about in the book of Colossians, it says there is a circumcision that is made without hands. That is, that's something that God does that doesn't involve man. So when you're talking about a stone cut without hands, you're talking about something that shows up, and it's going to be somebody that shows up, and it's not something that somebody put into its place or made it the stone it's something that's been done without human in instrumentation. God did it. It's a stone cut without hands. Look at what he says. Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, and this stone that's cut out without hands smites the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. So this stone is cut out without hands, and it comes down. You have this image standing, and when this stone comes out, it comes and it smites the image on his feet. And you think, well, the feet just kind of fall apart and the image topples over. That's not what the text says. What it says is that, uh, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. 
Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. So when this stone is cut out without hands, it comes and it smites this image on the feet. But it's not only the feet that disintegrate. The whole image disintegrates. It goes into powder, if you will. It's broken up like the chaff on the summer threshing floor. And when it does that, the, it's like the wind comes by and just blows it right away. And you can't ever find that thing ever again. It's gone. You understand the vision? All right. So then he, he comes through here. So Daniel, in verse 36, he begins to interpret and he plainly says, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, which is really a wild statement. He telling Nebuchadnezzar, he said, this what I'm getting ready to describe, to describe, you're at the top. You are the gold. You are as good as it gets. Now let me tell you what he's going to describe. You probably already know this, but I'll just tell you. What he's describing, what he's getting ready to explain and describe is the Gentile world powers throughout history from the time that Nebuchadnezzar ransacks Jerusalem around 606 B.C. and goes all the way to, through till the end of the tribulation. And that is called the times of the Gentiles. Okay? So when he goes through this thing, he goes through this thing and he describes it. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're that head of gold. He said, you are as good as it gets, which is horrifying. Because Nebuchadnezzar is sitting around a bunch of Jews that he's went up and plundered Jerusalem to get all their wealth. He's, I mean, it was, a, it was a big country. God used them, you know, to bring judgment on Israel. But what I'm saying is that when, when Nebuchadnezzar went up to ransack Jerusalem, he didn't go up there... Uh, and knock on the door and say, would you please come out and come down with us to Babylon? He went into Babylon and ransacked the place and burned it down and the Bible says ravished their women and killed their children. Nebuchadnezzar was a monster. He was a savage. God looking at the Gentile nation said, you are as good as it gets. I wonder what's happening. I wonder what's going on in America. Well, unfortunately, what's going on in America is exactly what has always taken place with Gentile nations. Listen, let me just jump off to a side tangent here. This might cut into a little bit of time, but let me just say this. What we have in America is really an anomaly. What we have had for the last several hundred years is really something that has been unknown to Gentile nations. You say, how, how did it come about? From the influence of Christians. They, they came to this country, and there in the belly of the May, Mayflower, they compacted together, and essentially the reason that they came here was for the furtherance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how. This is not a Christian nation. But it was a nation that was founded within Christian intent. It was founded with Christian principles. And that created the greatest nation outside of Israel that has ever been known in the history of the world. There will probably never be another one like this nation. 
the, the overwhelming view of Gentile nations is not positive. God looked at Nebuchadnezzar and said, you're as good as it gets. Thou art this head of gold. Give you, give you just something to think about. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't get bent out of shape with what's going on in America, and I'm not telling you that you shouldn't do something to stop it. What I am saying is you've got to understand that the answer is not putting somebody into office. The answer is spreading the gospel, getting people saved. That's the only way this country can be turned around. You keep your mouth shut and this country will keep going the way that it's going. You've got to spread the gospel. All right, that's a little side note there. But anyways, Nebuchadnezzar, you're this head of gold. Uh, verse 39, so Daniel begins to interpret the image as being first Nebuchadnezzar as the head and then inferior kings to follow, inferior kingdoms to follow. And that explains why the image starts with gold and then it moves on to silver, brass, iron, and then iron and clay mix. Now, each of these metals corresponds to a particular kingdom. Let's see if we can run through these. I've got about 15 minutes left if we push it real tight. Let's see if we can run through these things. Gold is Nebuchadnezzar. That's Daniel chapter 2, uh, verse 38. Uh, he says the end of the verse, thou art this head of gold. And then you've got silver, verse 39. He said, after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. Well, what's this silver? Look in Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 and look in verse 1. Let's get a little bit of context and then we'll take you to where we really need to go. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Daniel 5, verse 1. Belshazzar, the king made a feast to the thousand to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Verse two, uh, Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. That gives you indication of what kingdom we're still talking about. We're still in Babylon, and then you can look down in verse twenty-five. Well, verse seven. Look at what he says. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers. Chaldeans, Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon. See where we're at? We haven't changed kingdoms yet. We're still dealing with Babylon. Now watch, verse 25. This is the story where the hand comes out writing on the wall. This is the writing. Daniel's interpreting. This is the writing that was written. Meany, meany, tekel yufarzen. This is the interpretation of the thing. Meany, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tickle. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldean slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. And one night the hands of who is, who is in charge of the Gentile world powers changes in one night. God's direction, God said it changes overnight. Babylon, now we're dealing with the Medes and the Persians, and then that's what you've got dealing in uh, Daniel chapter 6. Daniel, uh, going back to Daniel chapter 2, he said, after thee shall rise, this is verse 39, shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee and another third kingdom of brass. Well, then who, who are you dealing with there? Daniel chapter 8. 
Daniel chapter 8. I know I'm running through these things, but we're trying to make some time. Daniel chapter 8, look in verse 2. Daniel chapter 8, verse 2. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw a vision, and I was by the river of Uli. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Uh, let me find my place here. And I, as I was considering, behold, and he goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth, touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very strong, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, for it came up four, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of the earth. Brother Nathan, what does all that mean? It's another vision. And the vision is explained later in the chapter. Look in verse 20. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. It's explained. Verse uh, 21. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So back in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, thou art this head of gold. You can see what comes after Nebuchadnezzar, the next kingdom, the silver, is Media, Medes and the Persians. It's Media and Persia. It would explain having the two arms. It's, 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 a, it's a dual kingdom of sorts, but we'll get into that here in just a second a little bit. And then after that, you've got the brass. Well, who's that represented by? The Bible says it's Greece. Then after that, he says here in verse 40 of Daniel chapter 2, he said, And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, forasmuch as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. Now, there's a little bit of disagreement about who this fourth kingdom is. Uh, I'm not going to tell you a whole lot of options, but I, I'll just tell you who I believe it, it is. And I think if you just take a, a, a broad look at history, you can understand why I would say this. It's Rome. Uh, the Bible, the, about the only reference that I can see clearly of who that fourth kingdom is is in Daniel chapter 9. If you look in Daniel chapter 9 and look in verse 26, which Lord willing we'll get to next Sunday. Verse 26, it says, After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. That's the death of Jesus Christ, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the, uh, unto the, end of the war desolations are determined. Uh, you have to put some things together, but when you come figure out that prince is a, is a Roman prince, there's something that relates to Rome. And so he says, the people of the prince that shall come. And so when you tie all that stuff together, what you're dealing with with that fourth section of this image that Nebuchadnezzar is dealing with, it's Rome. And I, I'll just go ahead and tell you this. One of the arguments of who that fourth image is, is they say it's 
Islam. And that is ridiculous. That, that's absolutely ridiculous. Islam has never become a world power. Let me just chase this rabbit for just a second. Uh, what we're dealing with are the succession of world powers. And they say, well, you know, Rome couldn't be it because Rome never conquered the territory that, you know, Babylon conquered and so forth and so on, which I'm not sure I would agree with that, but just for the sake of argument, let's say that that's true. So your next best option is Islam. Islam has never created anything anywhere it's gone. It can't. You say, why? Because their religion stinks. When you kill everybody that disagrees with you, when you are <clears throat> assaulting women and children, you're not going to build any kind of a kingdom. It's just, it's not going to be built. Uh, there's some other reasons why I, I, I believe with all my heart it's not Islam, but we don't have time to deal with all that this morning. So uh, let me say this, and then look down in verse, uh, verse 41, whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of iron for as much as thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. So now, so you've gone from a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, uh, a, a belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and then now you're into the feet, which have toes, and those feet and toes are iron and clay mixed. It's the weakest it's ever been. And then look at what he says. He says, there's ten toes. And then in verse 44, he said, and in the days of these kings. So when he's talking about the toes, he's talking about kings. Now you hold your place in Daniel chapter 2 and turn with me very quickly to Revelation chapter 17. And I'll show you where these kings show up one more time. Now listen, I understand fully that I am zooming through this material. And I, I'm trying my best to slow down, but I've only got about five minutes. And I want to get through this so that we can deal with something else next week. So I'm not trying to explain everything that you need to understand today, but I'm trying to give you some things to chew on this week so that when you come back next Sunday, maybe we can tie some things together. All right? So just bear that in mind. You say, Brother Nathan, I don't understand all this stuff. Hang in there. Hang in there. We'll get it. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 12. We're talking about the ten toes very quickly. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet but received power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. That beast is showing up in the tribulation. That beast deals with the spirit of Antichrist deals with the man of sin. Well, those kings are giving their power, they're giving their allegiance, they're giving uh, their leeway to the beast. So by the time you get to the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's image, you're clear into the tribulation. Okay? You say, well, why bring that out? Because we started with Nebuchadnezzar, and now we're ending in the tribulation. So what you've got looking at Nebuchadnezzar's image is you've got a picture of Gentile world history from 
the viewpoint of the scriptures spanning from about 600 B.C., 606, when Nebuchadnezzar goes up and ransacks Jerusalem. You've got a picture of Gentile world history, Gentile world power spanning from about 606 going all the way to the tribulation. All right? Anybody lost yet? Oh, you ran through that really fast. Okay. Let me point out one other thing and we'll close. We said that, I, I pointed out to you, the scripture says gold, silver, silver is less valuable than gold. Gold, silver, brass, brass is less, less valuable than silver, so on and so forth. It decreases in value. These kingdoms, as they go along, they get weaker. They get weaker. They do not get stronger. Things do not improve. Man is not evolving. He is devolving. He's getting worse and worse. That is how everything turns out in the history of man. God put man in a garden, gave him one commandment, Adam messed it up. God put, puts him out of the garden, gets so bad, God has to drown out the whole world, start over with Noah. Noah comes out of the ark, messes things up. God starts out with Abraham. Abraham doesn't believe God, goes into Hagar, messes things up. That's how people are. You say, why? That is human nature. That's your fallen nature, I should say. Man messes things up. Gentile world powers are no different. I'll say this, the church is no different. The church ends in apostasy. It doesn't end at the, at the climax. It doesn't end at the best it's ever ended. It ends in apostasy. That's because it's people. That's who we're dealing with. You say, that's a very negative outlook. That's a biblical outlook. That's how we know that the scripture was not written by men. It was written by God because the revelation shows that men don't get better, they get worse. Get back to this very quickly. Babylon, when you start out with Babylon, Babylon is the best that it gets. If you turn over into Daniel chapter 5, we're not going to look at all these because we've got about five minutes, but Daniel chapter 5, uh, Daniel is getting ready to interpret this thing. We've already looked at this. He's getting ready to interpret this handwriting on the wall. And before he does this, he's getting ready to interpret to uh, Belshazzar, the descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. Before he interprets this vision of the handwriting on the wall, what Belshazzar saw, he preaches him a little sermon. And this is the sermon that he preaches. He says, Then Daniel answered and said, verse 17 of Daniel 5, Let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. And then he said, verse 18, O thou king, thou the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. That's Daniel chapter 2. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would he slew and whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he set up and whom he would he put down. But when his mind was hardened, was lifted up and his mind hardened and pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. I was reading so fast I read right over what I was trying to get you to see. The verse says in verse 19, whom he would he slew, whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he set up, whom he would he put down. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, did whatever he wanted to do. Nobody told him to do anything. He didn't need anybody's approval. He was an absolute monarch. See that? Uh, Darius the Mede comes in. The Medes and the Persians come in. And Darius has some men that are on some kind of council or senate, and they say, hey, let's make a law. <clears throat> let's make a law according to the laws which can't be altered. And he said, uh, let's make a law that nobody pray or give any petition to any god other than your god for 30 days. And he said, okay, wrote it into law, and then come to find out 
Daniel was the one that those guys were out to get. You know that story. That was why Daniel went into the lion's den. Of course, God took care of him, so forth and so on. But do you remember before Daniel went into the lion's den, do you remember what the Bible said about Darius? The Bible said that Darius set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, but he couldn't. Why? Because he wrote in, he signed in this law into effect that couldn't be altered according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. His hand's been tied. You say, what is that? That's a degradation from an absolute monarchy to something to where now he's not absolute. Again, when you get to the book of Esther, Esther is the same people ruling, the Medes and the Persians, Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus has this wife. She doesn't do what Ahasuerus tells her to do. She gets kicked off the throne. Esther comes in. Haman is one of Ahasuerus's royal aides or whatever, and he says, let's make a law. He said, let's make a law to exterminate a people that despise you and your people. And Ahasuerus gives him his ring and says, help yourself. By the way, let me just say this. That is the first mention in the scripture of lobbying. He said, he said, if you'll let me put this law in, he said, I'll pay into the king's treasuries. That's where your lobbying comes from. But anyways, and so he gives it to him and he signs it into law. Well, when everything boils down and come to find out, that's Esther's people. Well, you remember what Ahasuerus did? Ahasuerus did not go in and say, well, we'll just take that law off the books. He couldn't. You know what he did say? He said, we'll make a new law. And he said, the law is that the Jews can stand for their own lives. Now they can stand on the offense and they can go out and deal with the people that were going to exterminate them. You say, why? Degradation of power. Then you come to Greece and I have to get into a bunch of world history there, but uh, Greece was less powerful than as far as their government goes. It was less powerful than the Medes and the Persians. And by the time you get to Rome, Rome is a situation to where when Caesars, the Caesars started, those guys were being elected to power. They were being appointed, and they were tied by a senate. Uh, I'm reading a book right now on the history of, of England, which is really wild, which, by the way, I don't know if you knew it or not, but uh, Great Britain in its early days came from Rome. You say, why? why, why? In, in the early days of America we had to be taught about Roman history. And the reason for that is because that's where Europeans, that's where Great Britain comes from. That's where a lot of French folks come from. That's where a lot of Germans come from. There's a whole lot of history there, a lot of intermingling of different peoples. But we basically got our roots in Rome. So by the time you get there, these Caesars have their hands tied by the Senate. There's a Senate there, and these guys don't get to make absolute rules. You're sitting in a form of government right now to where the president, I mean, unless he signs an executive order, the president is in the United States of America is not supposed to be an absolute ruler. There is a system of checks and balances. Well, we got that from Rome. That's not an absolute monarchy. So it's gone now from the point of, it's gone from gold, silver, and it's gotten worse as time goes on. And by the time that you get to the toes and the, it's the iron and clay mixed, what you're dealing with is a form of government that's so weak, it's got kings, but it's so weak that there's not much there that can be done. Now, I pointed out to you when we first started out, 
we don't have time to go over it today. We'll, we'll deal with the stone here in, in the next class. But uh, what I pointed out to you was that the image was one whole thing. It's a unit. It's a whole image. Do you know where uh, when Babylon gets conquered, there's a religion that's in Babylon. It's mystery Babylon shows up again in the book of Revelation. Well, that religion is still in effect today. It started in Babylon. Well, I say it started in Babylon. It actually started earlier than that, but started back in the book of Judges. Uh, but anyways, it's still around today. You say, where is that Roman Catholic church? Yeah. Somebody's mad. It doesn't get kicked out. It gets incorporated. You know where a lot of military strategy comes from? It comes from the Medes and the Persians. Greek philosophy. In the early days of this country, Greek philosophy was taught in our schools. Why? Because it's been incorporated. Roman, Roman jurisprudence, Roman legislation, all of those things, that all gets incorporated, and it just keeps coming down and keeps coming down and keeps coming down. Those things are not done away with. They just keep falling and trickling down. That's what's going on. So when you're looking around and seeing all the corruption and seeing all the filth, what you're actually watching is Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's image. It's just, it's the same old stuff, man. It breaks your heart because, hey, this is America, the land of the liberty. But all I'm trying to point out to you, I'm not trying to get you to be indifferent or cold to that. But what I am saying is par for the course. That's where we're at. All right? A lot of information. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us this morning. Lord, went a little bit long, but God, we pray, Lord, I, I know I zoomed through these things, probably should have took two classes and went through this stuff, but Lord, I just pray that you'd help us, God, to bear these things in mind. We'll try and look at these things, and God, also get some practical application from them. And Lord, we pray, God, that even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly, Lord. God, I pray that you'd come back, set up the kingdom, Lord, that you want set up. God, do what it is that needs to truly be done. God, and get the glory and honor that you rightfully deserve. And Lord, we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Take a little break. We'll take about five minutes, and then we'll get started this morning.